Please uh, turn with me to the 14th chapter of Romans, and we will look at the first 12 verses. As we uh, continue to make our way through this letter, we are in the portion of the letter where Paul is working out and applying the gospel that he has articulated and unpacked and unfolded for us in the first 11 chapters. So Romans 14, beginning at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us, will give an account of himself to God. Hmm. Let's pray. Lord, this is is a good word, as every word from you is. It's a challenging word. So help us, Lord, um, penetrate our defenses, overcome those things that need to be overcome, and by your Spirit... Walk among us, take your word, and drive it into our hearts so that you might be praised, so that love might be put on display. In your name we ask this, amen. You may be seated. If you have been uh, in the church for a while, and I don't mean just this church, I mean if you have been in and around the church for a while, and if you've been just a little bit observant, you've probably had the experience of being exposed to the sort of unseemly underbelly of the life of the church. The church has an unseemly underbelly. It's something you can become cynical about. Um, or it's something you can just sort of acknowledge and, and engage. 
It's a great story, funny story that, that sort of gets at this. There's a man who's uh, stranded, he's, he's on a, a desert island someplace, and he gets picked up, and, and the captain of the crew that, that take him from this island looks on the beach, and he says, he sees three huts, and he asks the guy, what are the three huts? And the guy says, well, the one in the middle is my house. Oh, okay, well, what's the one on the left? Well, the one on the left is my church. Well, what, what's the one on the right? And he said, well, that... That's my old church. I got mad at the pastor and left. <laughs> See, one of the great sadnesses, really and truly, of being a pastor for 30 to 40 years is, is having to deal with disunity and division, having to deal with individuals who become upset with other individuals who unnecessarily separate from each other. Sometimes, if the church is big enough, I mean literally physically big enough, they don't leave the church, they just sit in opposite corners of the sanctuary. Or they go to different services. It's that sort of thing that is in view in Romans chapter 14. As I said, Paul has been working out the implications of the gospel, the gospel that he has worked through in these first 11 chapters. He's working out the implications of that that gospel for these Roman Christians. What does the Christian life look like? What shape does the gospel take in the day-to-day, nitty-gritty stuff of life? And generally, what you can say, in general terms, what you can say about the outworking of the gospel in the nitty-gritty of life in a local place like Rome is that the Christian life is characterized by two things, humility and love. Humility and love. Just, Just flip back just a couple of chapters and read some of the things that Paul has said. Romans 12, verse 9, Let love... Be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Verses 14 to 16, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be conceited. Never be conceited. Chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And all the other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Two things, it seems to me, humility and love are marks of the church. But there was a situation in Rome which was creating problems and so the unity and the peace of the church, the well-being of the church, was being threatened. That's the soft underbelly. That's the the unseemly underbelly of the church, the reality of the church. 
is that there are these things that can arise. There are these issues that can arise. And what can result from those things, Paul uses the word quarreling in verse 1. What can emerge from those things is is quarreling. And other things that can emerge from those things are, are things like passing judgment or despising one another. That's what Paul is getting into here in Romans chapter 14. And what he wants is to admonish these Christians to do what makes for peace, what makes for the mutual upbuilding of the church. That's chapter 14, verse 19. What builds up instead of destroys. So there's a real threat here. And that real threat... threatens to disrupt the unity of the life of the church. And what emerges from these two chapters, 14 and 15, is a recipe for living in love, living in a very practical way, hard, challenging to be sure, but living in love in very practical ways. That's what we're looking at in chapters 14 and 15. So let's ask some questions about this passage. Uh, let's ask some questions, and as we ask those questions, let's just, let's just acknowledge that we as a church are in transition, and transition creates uncertainty, and uncertainty can create fear, and when there is, there is uncertainty and there is fear, there is the environment, the potential environment for disagreements which can threaten the unity of the church. This is very practical, and it seems to me very timely. So that's what we're going to look at over the next two or three weeks. But let's ask some questions about this particular passage. Number one, who are the weak and who are the strong? The weak are mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14, and then in verse 1 of chapter 15, the strong are mentioned, and Paul used himself as one of the strong. We who are strong, who are they? Who are the weak, who are the strong? Second, what are the issues here? Verses 3 through 6 refer to eating and to foods, and then verses 5 and 6 refer to days, special days. What's going on here? What are the issues that are threatening this church? And then third, where's the resolution? How do you move through these disagreements, these tensions, so that they are diffused, okay? So who are the weak and who are the strong? What are the issues? And how are these tensions diffused and resolved? Okay, who are the weak? Who are the strong? Let me give you some background because the background helps us to answer the question who the weak are and who the strong are. Let me just tell you that I believe, I think it's consistent with Uh, this letter and with what's going on in Rome at the time, that I believe that the weak are Jews who have become Christians. They have embraced Christ as the Messiah. So they are Jews who are coming out of Judaism, having come to Christ, and the strong are Gentiles and Jews whose consciences have experienced 
a freedom with respect to some specific things that these other Jews have not yet experienced and may never experience. So the weak, it seems to me, are Jews coming out of Judaism, struggling with their past, struggling to interpret their past in light of the present, the present gospel realities, And the strong are those who, having come to faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, have experienced a liberty at the level of conscience that these other brothers have not yet experienced. Okay? Now, here's the background. Here's the background. First, there's a bunch of things here, but first remember that Paul has never been to Rome. He's never been to Rome, but he does know people in Rome. If you look at chapter 16, you read through those first several verses, there are over 30 people mentioned, specific people and then additional people connected, not named but connected to the, to the nearly 30 people who were, are referred to specifically. There are at least three churches, house churches, that are identified. So while Paul has never been there, He's never been to Rome. He knows people, and presumably, I think this is a fair inference, he has received firsthand information from people in Rome about what is going on in the life of the church in Rome, in the life of the churches in Rome. And this itself, it seems to me, is a teaching point. It's a thing for you to remember about the Bible. Paul is a pastor. And Paul's pastor is Jesus himself. Jesus is a pastor. And pastors are concerned about people. Paul cares about people, and Paul's pastor, Jesus, cares about people. So there isn't anything theoretical in that sense in the entirety of this letter. Everything that Paul writes in this letter and everything that you read in the Bible is in the Bible out of concern for people and even specific people in specific places. I don't care where you start. I mean, you can go back to the first five books of of the Bible, which seems so foreign and so alien to us. But God, the great pastor of his people, through Moses, a pastor of the largest church the world has ever seen, communicates what he communicates in those five books to real people living at a real place in real time with real concerns. The Bible is always pastoral. And Paul is being pastoral here with information that he's received. It's not a theoretical book. Theology is not a theoretical science. True theology is inherently, intrinsically pastoral and practical. So Paul's never been there, but he does know what's going on, and he cares about what's going on. He loves these people, and he wants to address the issues that are threatening them. Second thing, this letter to the Romans was written most likely from Corinth. You have to to go back about four years to remember this, okay, to August of 2000, five years, August of 2009, when we moved into the building, and we started preaching through Rome. This letter was written probably from Corinth during Paul's third missionary journey around 57 AD 
25 years after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, 25 years after Pentecost, and here's the probable history of the church in Rome. You read the commentaries, there's pretty much uniformity about how the church in Rome got started. Here's how it got started. The church in Rome got started by Jews living in the diaspora, away from Jerusalem, away from the Holy Land, Jews living in Rome who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And lucky them, they happened to come to the Passover celebration where the true Passover was finally sacrificed. They happened to be in Jerusalem. When Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tried, judged, executed, died, was buried, was raised to newness of life, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. They were there. There were Jews in Jerusalem who heard, who witnessed these things. Luke tells us in Acts 2, verse 5, there were staying in Jerusalem Jews, devout Jews, from every nation under heaven. And then verse 10, he says that among them were visitors from Rome. Visitors from Rome. So again, this is what the commentators suggest. Some of those visitors who were there from Rome were there when Peter preached his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. See, this isn't isn't abstract theoretical stuff. This is not disinterested history that Luke writes for us. They're real people in Jerusalem who heard Peter preach and who were among those who cried out when they heard that sermon, What must we do? Whose hearts were cut to the quick. And Peter then said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Be baptized for the cleansing and remission of your sins. And so what did these folks do? They went back to Rome. What went with them when they went back to Rome? The gospel. The gospel went with them. And what do you suppose they did when they got back home to Rome? Same thing I did when I got back to Niles, Michigan, after I heard the gospel and was converted to Christ, converted in Plano, Texas, north of Dallas, drove my Ford Maverick back to Michigan, and what's the first thing I started to do? Look for my friends to tell my friends that Jesus had changed my life. Church in Rome wasn't planted by Paul. Church in Rome wasn't planted by Peter. wasn't planted by Peter and Paul. The church in Rome most likely was planted by you and me. Common folk who got changed by the gospel and brought that gospel back home. And for about 15 years, Roughly 15 years, the church grew, and it grew pretty significantly. 
And the reason we know that it grew pretty significantly is because a controversy began to emerge in Rome. And that controversy was attached to a person, this is according to the Roman historian Suetonius, that controversy was attached to a person named Crestus. A Latinization of the Greek word Christ, which translates the Old Testament word Messiah. And because of Crestus, because this person Crestus was creating this controversy, well, you can imagine what the controversy was, can't you? Here, these Christians come back from Rome and they start preaching the gospel. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has come. The Christ has come. They're in synagogues. They're saying, he's here, we've seen it, lived, died, was raised, ascended to the right hand of the Father, spirit poured out on the church. Isaiah 61 is fulfilled. It's happened, it's here. What did that do in Paul's ministry? What did it do in Jerusalem? It created a division, didn't it? What did it do among my friends? Created divisions. Created divisions. Chris Clutie, my high school girlfriend, became a Christian. Donald Tuttle, my best friend growing up, thought I was a fool and an idiot. Division. The gospel does that. And that's what was happening in Rome. There was so much stir and so much ruckus over this person, Christus, that the emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. Christians were viewed as a cult of Judaism. So they got kicked out as well. So what happens to the church? What happens to the church? The Jews are all gone, virtually all gone. So a church that, this is great stuff, folks. I mean, this is great stuff. Read between the lines here and listen closely. The people who founded the church got kicked out, and that just left the Gentiles. And for the next several years, the Roman church continued to grow, but it grew among Gentiles. And after those several years had passed, the Jews started coming back. The Jews started coming back. And they didn't go back to the synagogues. The Jewish Christians, where would they want to go? Where would they want to be? They want to associate with believers. They want to associate with Christians. And so they start making their way to these house churches that are almost exclusively Gentile. And they're having a hard time finding a place because they're different. Because they're different. Paul's writing this letter to the Romans with that as the background. You see it. You see it throughout the letter. Chapter 1. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Chapter 3. We've already judged that all alike are under sin, both Jew and Gentile. Chapter 11. Verse 10, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. 
He's very conscious of the fact that these churches are experiencing this racial, ethnic, cultural tension. And in this particular part of the letter, he's writing to address it. So who are the weak? The weak are those Jews who have made their way back to Rome, having been exiled by Claudius. They're coming back to these churches. Among them are Priscilla and Aquila, Jews, Paul's good friends, church planting buddies. But if you read through those names, there's a whole bunch of Gentile names there as well. Jewish names, Gentile names. I I think Paul is doing that to illustrate what it is that he's after. He includes those names because he wants these people to have a visual picture of the fact that these deep cultural divides can be overcome in the gospel. So who are the weak? The weak are these Jews who are making their way back and they're having a hard time finding a place. Why does Paul say in verse 1 of 14, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. Not so that you can pick a fight with him. Welcome the one who is weak in faith. So who are the weak? The weak are these Jews finding, a hard, finding it hard to separate themselves from their Judaism. And who are the strong? The strong are these Gentiles, largely Gentiles, and probably some Jews too, who have found a greater liberty of conscience, a greater freedom. Strong and weak. So second, what are the issues? What are the issues? Why were these tensions emerging? Well, let's make this clear. Let's make clear what is not at issue in Rome. What is not at issue in Rome is what was at issue in Galatia. In Galatia, what was at issue was the gospel. And so Paul begins his letter to the Galatians with these most forceful words. If anyone should preach a gospel, even an angel from heaven should preach a gospel, if I myself should preach a gospel to you different from the gospel which you've heard and received, let that person be accursed. Really important here, folks. The differences that are threatening the church in Rome are different from what was threatening the church in Galatia. In Galatia, there was the threat that the gospel would be lost. In Rome, these are believers. And as one commentator puts it, whether you're a weak person in faith or a strong person in faith living in Rome, these are people who would have heard the first 11 chapters of Romans and would have said, Amen. They believed the gospel. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that their forgiveness and standing and well-being before God was grounded upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. They agreed about that. The struggle was with respect to what we call these secondary matters. 
Secondary matters, folks. And in this particular case, the tension was over practice. Specifically, what foods can I eat and what days, what days deserve special attention? Foods and days. Now, as we're going to see next week, I'll make some comments about the Sabbath and about Sabbath observance. I don't believe Sabbath observance is what is in view here. Think about it. If you're a Jew coming to Christ, coming out of Judaism, think about all of the things that you're bringing with you as you come out of that world. Think about things like the Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, all of the special days in Judaism that matter deeply to Jews, that their lives revolved around special days that had special significance. Those, it seems to me, are the days that are in view, as Paul talks about them in this passage. One person sees one day as being special, another sees all days as being the same. Look, Christians acknowledge that there is a special day every week. And that day is the Lord's Day, and the church recognized that that was a special day. That's not the day that's in view. It's these other days that meant so much to Jews. And and not only was it days... It was foods. It was foods. Here these Jews are making their way back into Rome, and they've got, they've got all of this history of clean foods and unclean foods. And then they've got the, the additional problem, given the expulsion of the Jews, quite likely all the kosher butchers had to shut down their shops. So where do you go to get kosher meat? So they just decided, well, we're not going to do meat. We'll just eat vegetables to avoid the problem. And then you've got the additional matter of butchers in Rome who are selling meat to priests who will then dedicate that meat to be sacrificed in temple worship. And in the view of many, it's contaminated. And Jews say, I'm not going to eat contaminated meat. I'm not going to run the risk of it, so I'm just going to eat vegetables. See, they've got all of this stuff that they bring with them. And they're deeply sensitive and they have convictions about these things. Peter struggled with this, didn't he? Remember his vision in Acts chapter 10? The sheet that comes down out of heaven filled with all these animals. And God says, take and eat. And there's a bunch of unclean stuff in there. And Peter says, I'm not going to do that. Nothing unclean has ever crossed my lips. And God says, what I declare to be clean, don't you disagree with me. And it continued to be a problem, right? Paul had to confront Peter. Remember Galatians chapter 2? Paul had to confront Peter. Why? Because Peter was refusing to eat with Gentiles. This stuff is deep. It's deep. But these folks have been changed by Jesus. They've been changed by Jesus really and truly embraced him as Messiah. But they're bringing this stuff with them. They're bringing this stuff with them. Now, it's a little difficult 
it's a little bit difficult to find exact parallels so as to apply what it is that Paul is getting at here. But let me suggest, and and this is risky, this is risky, because I don't want to create divisions by pointing out points at which divisions can, in fact, begin to be created. Right? But let me just suggest some things that may be parallels. Let's say you grew up in, were raised in a setting in which people who really, really loved Jesus were teetotalers. And for whatever the reason, you find yourself in a fellowship of believers who really, really love Jesus and who drink. Not to excess, but it's not uncommon to go to someone's home, be invited for dinner, and to see beer or wine served. And maybe even a scotch. Or here's another. You grew up, were raised in a church filled with people who really, really loved Jesus. They're imperfect, right? But they really loved Jesus. Maybe it was a Nazarene church or a Christian Missionary Alliance church or an Independent Baptist Fellowship or an Episcopal church. And you find yourself in a church that loves the Bible, where people love Jesus, and you're hearing things about God's sovereignty and God's providence, and it's unlike anything you've ever heard, and reference is made to these peculiar doctrines of election and predestination, and you see children being baptized. If you're an Episcopalian, that's okay. You grew up Nazarene, CMA, or Baptist, not so much. But you find yourself in an environment where that's happening. Or you hear that the next great event in human history is not the rebuilding of the temple, not the thousand-year earthly reign of Christ, with seven years of tribulation thrown in there somewhere, but you begin to hear that the next big event in the whole of human history, is the return of Christ and the consummation of all things and the new heaven and the new earth. And it all sounds so strange. Whether it's the drinking thing or certain theological things or eschatological things. And here is my question. Here is my question. How will you be received as you find yourself in a place like that? How will you be received? See, I think that's the first question here, folks. It's not about the persons who differ from us who come in from the outside. It's about us and how they will be received when they are here. How will they, with these 
differing convictions, moving into a very different world, be received? Will they be received as sincere and deeply committed brothers and sisters in Christ? Because that's what they are. This is a to-be-continued thing, folks. We're going to talk about specifics next week and how, how Paul takes us back to the gospel and glues us to the gospel and glues us to the manner in which Jesus has received us and welcomed us and the way Jesus has received us and welcomed us becomes the standard of measure for how we receive. We'll talk about it more. But for right now, for right now, that's the question to wrestle with. When people come through those doors and they bring with them different theological understanding, different cultural habits and practices, how will they be received? Paul says, welcome, welcome the one who is weak in faith. And when we welcome, do we welcome unconditionally? If we say welcome, but don't drink. If we say welcome, but you had better have a clear apprehension of and then articulation of what it means to be theologically reformed. Covenantal. Amillennial. If we say welcome, but you must be this or that or something else. You see what has happened? We've added conditions to the gospel. And we can't do that. Because that is not the manner by which we have been received by the king into the kingdom. So, do you love Jesus? Welcome. Welcome. Let's pray together. Lord, we need for you to to help us because we come with stuff. We come with stuff. You know we do. I do. We all do. Would you help us to separate the stuff we bring with us and the heart and the soul, the guts, the beauty, the loveliness of the gospel Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't say to me, welcome, but get your hair cut. Thank you that you didn't say to me, welcome, but change your clothes. Thank you you didn't say to me, welcome, but read this book first. Help me, Jesus, and help us to be as welcoming as welcoming of others as you 
have been with us. For the sake of your name, we ask this. Amen.